The following message is by Pastor Andrew Beto, pastor of First Baptist Church of Orchard, Texas. More information on First Baptist Church Orchard can be found at fbcorchard.com. Dear Jesus, God, we thank you so much for this morning. We thank you for the opportunity to worship you with our voices, and now we ask that you would enable us to worship you with our minds. God, I ask that you would be with us, that you would watch over us and keep us, that you would preserve us as we begin to try to understand the mysterious things of your kingdom. God, please prepare us. Drive away from us any of the things that separate us from you. And Lord, I ask that you would prepare me this morning, that you would pour out your, your Holy Spirit on me, that you would anoint me with holy unction to preach your word to your people so that they could go out and do your will. And Lord, I ask these things in your holy name. Amen. All right. So, before we get into the scripture, I want to kind of have a little bit of self-confession time. I am uh, I'm a dumpster diver. And I come from a long line of scavengers and garage sale people and junk store lovers. My wife hates it. She judges me for it. She persecutes me mercilessly for it. It's true. She's really, really unkind to me about the, my love of other people's junk. One of the, I mean, it's what we do. One of the worst things for a junky person like myself is Craigslist. Okay? Craigslist is awesome. It's like a garage sale that's the size of the nation. You can go on Craigslist and find anything. It's amazing. So the other, about a couple weeks ago, I started looking for Legos on, on, uh, on Craigslist because I got a son, right? And he's got this Lego habit. He loves Legos, loves where it, but Legos are crazy expensive. Legos are more expensive than drugs. Okay? Legos are really, really expensive, and I can't afford them. So I was like, well, I'll look for them on Craigslist. And I got a guy. Now I got a guy. Now I got a Lego guy. And so that's how, three weeks ago, I ended up in the parking lot of the O'Reilly's in Missouri City. I'm not going to say that I wasn't carrying concealed, okay? With a pocket full of cash and a pistol to go buy some Legos out of the back of a guy's trunk. That, that happened. That happened. And it was great. So I, I like went in, the guy opened up the back of his trunk. He's like, hey, take a look at these. I was like, all right. Held out some money. Took my box. No questions. It's all right. And I developed a relationship with this guy. So two weeks later, he's like, hey, man, I got some more Legos for you. I was like, rock on. Let's go meet at the, let's go meet at the Chipotle parking lot. Same thing. Saturday night, pocket full of cash, pistol in my pocket, gonna go buy some Legos, son. It was good. Good stuff. Yeah. So anyway, I'm sitting there talking to this guy, and I'm like, okay, how does this work, bro? You're, a, you're like a grown man. It's, it's actually kind of an interesting guy. He's like this Middle Eastern dude, and he's just a normal guy. And, uh, and he was like, so are you, are you, a, are you, a, you collect sets? I was like, no, I got a kid. 
It's like, you have a kid? He's like, no. I'm like, okay. What do you, why do you have thousands of dollars worth of Legos? Like, that doesn't, that doesn't seem right. He's like, oh, no, man, I grew up. Like, and my, my folks would never let me have Legos because they were too expensive. So now I'm an engineer and I got a job. And I, I like building Lego sets. He said, but my wife, she doesn't want me to have toys around the house. So, uh, and I, she can't really know how much I spend on these because I spent a lot of money on Legos. And if she knew, she'd spend all the rest of the money on shoes. So, you know, happy wife, happy life. I'm like, hey, man, I hear you. Trust me. I understand. You know, so what this guy does is he goes out to the store and he buys a Lego. And, and, and he takes it home and he builds it. And then... He puts it in a box, sells it to me for a quarter of the value, and he keeps the little figure, puts it up on his shelf. And, and while that's really cool for me, because I get Legos for way less than what they cost, it's a little bit sad. And, and it's a little bit sad because, because that, that, that toy was meant to be played with, and, and instead what it's done, it, it gets built, and it gets kind of put off to the side and... All that's left is this little trophy of, of this achievement that this man made. And, and if you think about it, in, in a lot of ways, this is the way we treat our Christian faith. Right? You, you, you get really excited. You, you pour in a lot of time and, and effort, and, and, and you grow, and it's amazing, and you get developed. And then it's just like, oh, okay, I got saved. I got baptized, and now uh, I'll take this little image of Christ, and I'll put them up on the wall of my life, and I'll move on to the next thing. Right? I, I did the thing. Like, I, I got saved. I've got, I, I got baptized, but it doesn't affect or impinge on anything else in my life. There's no now what. There's no taking this thing out and, and, and really running it through its paces. It's just relegated to the trash heap of our life. And, and I would tell you guys that this is not how salvation works. This is not why Christ came and died for you. Christ did not come, right, so that you could then take the salvation that was purchased at a huge cost and put it off to the side or throw it away or pass it on to somebody else and keep this little relic on the wall to point to, to remind you of that, that time that you made a decision a long time ago. It's not like that Bible. One of the saddest things for me is to see somebody with a Bible on their shelf, new in the box. Right? Somebody gave you that Bible and you never pulled it down. You open that sucker up and it creaks. You can watch moths fly out of it. Little silverfish are living in it. Okay? That's not what our faith is supposed to be. That is not what Christ died for. See, we're saved by the grace of God through faith in God. Based on the transformation worked within us by the sovereign plan of God. We were saved by grace, but we are called to action. Right? Our faith is supposed to be acted out in the world that we live in. It's supposed to be transformational. See, salvation is the beginning of a process. It's not the end of a process. It doesn't stop that day when you accept Christ. It doesn't stop that day when I take you down in, 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 the, in the baptism here and hold you under the water till the bubbles stop. That's not how salvation is supposed to work. 
Salvation is supposed to be an ongoing process. Brothers and sisters, we're saved, right? We say, I'm saved. That's right, you're saved. But you're also being saved. And you also will be saved. It's a process. As you are reborn to a new nature, and then as you are transformed into the image of the Savior that bought you, at the price of his blood. That's the process that we look at here. We call that process sanctification. As we are made holy. Right? The whole point is God wants to bring us into his kingdom in a shape where we can have relationship with him. And so he will transform us over the space of our life so that we can be someone who can be with God. This isn't an easy process. It's not a short process. In fact, it's a, it can be a painful process. It can be a gut-wrenching process as all of the scar tissue on our hearts, all of the garbage that we have filled up, the space in our heart is systematically cut out of us, burned from us, scraped off of us. This process of sanctification lasts our entire lifetime. And see, Peter begins this passage here talking about what this looks like. He's telling his audience that they've been called to participate with the Holy Spirit in their sanctification. This isn't something that just happened once and now we're good and now we can forget about it. This is something that happens over and over and over again every day of our lives. And so as we go through the book of 1 Peter, what we're going to see is he's going to have spiritual truth. Right? We talked last week, we talked the week before about how we want to build ourselves around timeless truth. We want to fight the power, the evil, timeless evil in the world with timeless truth, right? And Peter takes this timeless truth, and he says, timeless truth is awesome, but it has to be worked out through action. And so the passages that we have here, we've got five imperative commands. Okay, there's five things that Peter's telling us that we need to do. Right, first thing that we need to do. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the, at the revelation of Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you should also be holy in all your contact. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. So the first thing that we're called to do is to gird our minds up. Right? And to place our hope in grace. It's an interesting word picture that he creates there. This idea of girding yourself up, right? We're told to gird yourself for battle. A soldier would, would take his, his kind of the man dress that he wore, right? If you've ever seen like kind of a Middle Eastern man dress tunic thing, right? You, wanna, you can't go running in that. So you need to you kind of pull it up and belt it around yourself so that you can actually move and you can do things. And when you prepare for action, you gird up. You gird up. And get ready. This is the same word that's used when God talks to when he, God talks to Job, right? And Job questions God, right? He's like, "Oh, you know, what's my what's happening in my life?" And finally, God talks to him out of the world. He says, "Gird yourself up like a man. Let's have a conversation." That's what he's saying here. You need to gird yourself, prepare yourself to be able to conduct these actions. The way you prepare yourself is by placing your hope in grace. The process of sanctification begins with our hope set firmly on grace. We're not hoping for something other than that which God has promised to give us, right? So 
You're not saved so that God can make your life awesome. It just doesn't work that way. A guy that um, Shannon and I have been reading uh, is this, this Muslim guy, right, who, <clears throat> who came to Christ in spite of his family and, and has spent his, the, the majority of his adult life converting Muslims to Christ. Like thousands of Muslims have come to Christ through this guy's name's Nabil Qureshi. And you would think, like, I would think, hey, this, this guy is amazing. He's doing amazing things for the kingdom. And so his life should be awesome forever, like in always. Everything should work out for this guy because he's out there. He's like God's rainmaker. I mean, he's out there, like, bringing people to Christ. And yet this guy has stomach cancer. He's got probably 18 months to live. When they talk to him about what this means, there's, there's all kinds of Muslim clerics out there that are proclaiming curses on this guy and saying, look, look, see, he's dying of cancer because he turned away from Allah. And Nabil Qureshi said hey, he placed his faith in God. And whatever God wants to do with him is okay. He's going to continue to do the things that God has called him to do until God calls him home. Because see, his hope is not in a good and comfortable life. It's not in a, a long life where everything works out for him. His hope is in the grace of God that saved him and will carry him and will one day call him home. Sometimes I think we get lost in this. Right? We, we look at our prayer list, and our prayer list has name after name after name after name of people that are sick, people that have cancer, people that have problems. And guys, our hope is not that God is going to heal those people so that they can live forever. Because that doesn't happen. Every single person in this room is going to die. You will not get out of this life alive. That's just the way that it works. Our hope is that Christ will be glorified, that God will be glorified in what happens to their life, that they will pass out of this world as a believer and that they will go and spend eternity with their Father. Right? That's what our hope should be placed in because that hope will not be dashed. A hope that is placed in the grace of God will not be thwarted. If we place our hope in anything else, we're going to fall short. If we place our hope in anything else, we will be disappointed. And so as we gird our minds up for the, for the action and the sanctification that God is going to take us through, we have to set our minds on what is true and what is real and what is right, and that is that the glory of God will be demonstrated through the grace that He's shown us as He saves us. Right, but it's not just—it's not just living in our head. It's not just making, uh, having hope in the right thing, and then and then moving on and doing whatever we want to. See, see, Peter goes on to say, uh, as obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as He who called you is holy, you also should be holy. See, when we are saved, we are pulled out of the world that we used to live in. Right, every person here was raised with a culture that is focused on that which is fleeting and failing and profane doesn't matter how good your parents were doesn't matter how good your upbringing the world that we are raised into is a sinful world filled with false priorities and false gods but when we are saved we are called out of that we are called to become holy and holy means set apart 
It means taken out of the world and made separate, purified. That's how we're supposed to live our lives. Believers in Christ should not be conformed any longer to the patterns of this dark world, right? But we're supposed to be transformed as our mind is renewed, as we change the way that we conceptualize and think about things. 1 John 2.15 says, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of our eyes, and the pride of life is not from the Father. But it's from the world, and we should, we should separate ourselves from these things. See, we, we, should, we should place our hope in, in grace, and we need, to, we need to be holy as God is holy, but we also need to fear the Lord. Right? It says, and, and if you call him as Father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. And this is important for us to think about, right? As our minds are being transformed, as we are trying to separate ourselves from the world. I, I talked to somebody the other day, and, and we were talking about them growing in their faith, and, and, and this person had accepted Christ, and they said, you know, I, 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 have a, I, I have a different conception of God now. So what do you mean? And she said, I, I'm afraid of God. And I was like, that's good. You should be afraid of God. God is a scary dude. It is a terrible thing to fall into the hands of the living God. When you begin to actually think about... See, part of the problem that we have is that we, we don't really know who God is. We have this image of God, this little God, this, this God that we put up on a shelf like the elf on a shelf that watches us, right, and, and tells us what to do and kind of holds us accountable a little bit. That's not who God is. God is not small. God isn't, isn't a cuddly teddy bear that we can, we can kind of put away when, when we're tired. We can't turn the picture of God around when we're doing things that we shouldn't do. God is the all-knowing, all-seeing, all-powerful God of the universe who is both imminent in our lives and transcendent so far beyond anything that we can imagine. Do not ever think that you can put God in a box and predict what God is going to do. Do not ever think that God is small or controllable. Or that anything that you do is outside of the will, the power, or the knowledge of God. That is not God. Right? If you know who God is, if you have an experience with God, you will be afraid. Right? That's called wisdom. The Bible teaches us that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Because if you truly understand who God is, it should scare the living daylights out of you. Right? Oprah said that she could not, when she was asked why she stopped being a Christian, she said, I couldn't, I couldn't get my mind around the idea of fearing God. She said, I don't want to fear God. I don't think I should have to fear God. I think it's all about, you know, good thoughts that you put out and then good things come back to you, right? And, and that's, that, that's kind of how I see things. I don't, want to, I don't want to think about a God that I need to fear. But the reality is that there is a God who created you that has a standard for the way that your life is supposed to be. He gets to decide. And brothers and sisters, if you fall short of that mark, he can justly punish you. That is the God that we're dealing with. That kind of fear that drives us to want to have a right relationship with God is important. See, fear of the Lord begins with understanding who God is, but it continues when we begin to think about the person that we used to be. Right? When you go back and think about who you were before God saved you, that should scare you. 
Right? Every one of us is just a step away from being the person that we used to be. I know who I used to be. I know the things that I used to do. That person is still in here. Right? That, that man who did horrible things, who used people, who did violence, is inside of me. And the only thing that keeps that from busting out is the Holy Spirit remaking me on a daily basis. Ain't nobody in here is a good person. Nobody, nobody in here is, is, is a good person that, that deserves grace from God. Nobody in here deserves grace from God, but grace shows you grace. God shows you grace because he is a loving God and because he is transforming you and he is making you new and he's making you different. That's what the sovereign grace of God is. It's this grace that comes in, this alien righteousness that comes in and transforms us into something new. Right? That's what fear of the Lord means. It means knowing that we serve a holy God and that we are unable to meet his standard. It means looking at who we used to be and going, God, please don't let me be that person again. And that drives us to a place where we trust in God and where we flee temptation. See, I think a lot of times we don't flee temptation because we don't really hate sin. We like the grace that God's given us because we think it gives us the freedom to be able to do whatever we want to. And so we dabble with sin. And we dance around the edges of sin. It sins like a little, like a little pet, like a little pet dragon in our pocket that we feed every now and then because we don't want to actually take it out and kill it because it's kind of cute, right? It's like, like, that's my little sin. I keep it over here. I'm going to feed it little pieces of meat like an old lady with a small dog. Man, don't, be, don't feed sin. Don't coddle sin. You got to kill sin. And you got to kill temptation in your life. you got to flee temptation in your life. It is not something for you to mess with. If you fear God, if you know who you used to be, you will flee temptation. John Owen said it this way, Let no man pretend to fear sin that does not fear temptation also. These two are too closely united to be separated. He does not truly hate the fruit who delights in the root. Let me say that again. He does not truly hate the fruit that delights in the root. Instead of clinging to your sins, you should run from them because you fear God. Right? You develop a healthy fear by thinking about what it costs you to be saved. Right? I want you to think about this. Sometimes we get the impression that, Christian, that Christianity is this idea that there is no law anymore and that it doesn't matter. That, oh, you know, hey, I'm okay, and you're okay, and we're all okay, and it's just going to be cool, and God doesn't care anymore because he's, he's too evolved to be able to, to take morality seriously. But that is not what Christianity is at all. Christianity teaches that sin is so disgusting in the sight of God that it has to be paid for with blood. That's some old religion right there. That only, that only blood can pay for sin. Right? That in order to go into the presence of a holy God, you must be coated in the blood of something innocent? That's, that's some old stuff right there. That hasn't changed. Right? Your sins are so drastic and so dark that God had to take the most perfect thing in the universe and kill it for you. See, grace is free, but it's not cheap. Your salvation came at a staggering cost. And you have to remember that. Or sin will not be hateful to you. 
You develop a healthy fear by contemplating the vast expanse and perfection of the plan by which you were saved. Right in verse 20 he says, He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead to give him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. When we contemplate who God is and the plan by which we have been saved, we should be in awe of that. Something that transcends space and time. Something that is older than the stars. That shouldn't leave us unchanged. Lest we think that this is just about mental knowledge. Lest we think that this is just about morality and about doing the right thing. Peter goes on to say that Christians should love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Right? In, in, he goes on to say, Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere and brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart, since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. See, it's not enough for you just to do the right thing. It's not enough for you to believe the right things. Your actions have to speak out the love that saved you. We should love each other because we have purified our souls through our obedience to the truth. And this truth tells us that love is one of the central and abiding features of what Christianity is. Right? Paul says, though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but I have not love, I am nothing. Right? That I have the kind of faith that can tell a mountain to go and jump into the sea, but if I have no love, I am nothing. See, Christianity isn't just about knowing the right things or doing the right things. It's about pouring out the love that Christ has shown for you to the people around you. 1 John 4.20 says, If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. Let me say that again. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. Love is inextricably tied to our belief in Christ. So much so that if you don't have the one, you can't have the other. True love will come through an understanding of who we truly are. Right? And so he goes through this, this passage where he talks about how we have been born again into an imperishable seed that we will not pass away the way that everything else around us will. And this transformation, this new birth should change the way that we interact with the people around us. We should love each other because we have been born again. Everything around us is dying, but we need to love the things that are imperishable. Other Christians. Finally, we have to long for spiritual milk. Christians should nourish themselves from spiritual milk like newborn infants. Brothers, I want to ask you this. What are you feeding yourself with? See, if you, if you place your hope in glory, if you cling to holiness, if you fear God, if you love your brother, you will want to feed yourself with that which is timeless and that which is true. Stop feeding yourself with corrupt things with malice and deceit and hypocrisy and envy and slander. Have right? you ever noticed how, how 
we can sit here and and just just ruminate on past wrongs that have happened to us how how we can sit here and and build our lives on lies that we tell about ourselves you don't believe me go on instagram and see what people say about themselves everything on instagram is a lie okay um, I love my wife. My wife goes and, and makes side money taking pictures. She does portraits and, and people ask me, well, what does that mean? I said, well, my wife manufactures memories that never existed, right? You wear clothes you don't normally wear. You go to a place you don't normally go to. You stand a way that you would never stand and everybody smiles at the same time. Then we take a picture of it and then my wife spends two hours using Photoshop to make you look like you never looked before, right? I, I, that's always amazing to me when I take a picture. I'm like, man, I, I look good, baby. That's great. Did you do any work? Was, no, uh-uh. No, you really do. I was like, man, I, when I look in the mirror, that's not how I look. But I mean, man, you, you take some good pictures. Because it's a fake memory. Right? So, so often we spend so much time and so much money crafting fake, this fake image of who we are. Because we're, we're scared to death of who we actually are. We create, we create this image, and Christians are terrible about this, about hypocrisy, right? We're, we're going we're gonna to claim to be better than we are, right? We're going we're gonna, to we're gonna claim to be good people and moral people, and then on the side we're going to do horrible things where nobody can see us. We're going to build our lives on envy. And we're going to tear the people around us down with slander. Teenagers, this is especially true for you. Sometimes I think that high school is built on like this, this sick uh, monkey house where you're going you're gonna to you build yourself up by tearing everybody else around you down. This is not what you should be imbibing. This is not how you should be feeding your soul. You should be feeding your soul on the pure spiritual milk that comes from Christ. The, the image that he gives here is of a baby, a newborn baby. Right? If you've ever seen a newborn baby, all that thing wants to do is eat and go to the bathroom. It doesn't even want to sleep. Okay? All it wants to do is eat and go to the bathroom. And if you don't feed that thing, it's going to cry. Okay? It is going to cry. It's weird. When we first had our kids, uh, our kids cried all the time. And I went to work, and I worked with these construction workers, and they were like, you need to feed that baby. That baby's hungry. It's crying because it's hungry. And I was like, well, the doctor said we have to feed it, like, every two hours. And he's like, no, you need to give it rice cereal. Get some, make that thing thick as glue. Give it to the kid, and he'll sleep through the night. And it did because that baby was hungry. Right? And that's how we need to be. We need to be so hungry for the Word of God that if we don't get it, we cry out. That we'll do anything to get the Word of God. It says the, the spiritual milk and the word that it uses for spiritual has as its base the same word logos, right? The Word of God. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, right? And the Word came to earth in human flesh. It was the light of the world, but the world didn't want that light because it loved the darkness. That's what we should be craving. We should be craving the word of God. Amen. We should be craving Jesus and the wisdom that he brings. So much so that we are lost without it. In the light of the vast and sovereign grace of God that Peter describes in verses 1 through 12, we should respond through this active seeking out of sanctification, participating as God changes us by hoping in grace, living in holiness, fearing God, loving each other, and longing to be fed by God's truth. See, we've been saved by grace, but we have been called to action. 
But this isn't for just us, right? It's not so we'll become a, a, a spiritual rock star, right? I, I used to, when I, was in, when I was in the Marine Corps, we used to, we had an, I had an inappropriate view of non-combat arms guys. We call them pogues, and we talk about self-licking ice cream cone, like your guy in supply just exists so that he can exist. He can have the good, have the good cushy place when all of us were out there. Now, that's not a good or right way to think. But you, as a Christian, you don't want to be a self-licking ice cream cone. You don't want to just be there for your own existence. You, you have been saved. You have been bought for a reason. There is a purpose that you're here. Right? You're being transformed so that you can do something. I, I think a lot of times, as Christians, what we do is we, we spend all of our time learning about God. We spend all of our time uh, going to church. We spend all of our time becoming and we never spend any time actually doing right we don't go out and actually do anything that god is calling us to do see god is calling us he's transforming us so that he can send us out on mission to become his church i want you to contribute continue with me in chapter two right in chapter two verse four it says as you as you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves like living stones are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Right? The idea here is God has saved us. He's called us. He's transforming us so that we become bricks in this wall of the house in which he will live in this world. We are, we are to be the temple for the rest of the world. See, in the, in the Old Testament, the Jews created a temple. They built a tabernacle. And God lived among his people in this house. And that house was supposed to represent God's house in heaven. And it was a place where God came and the people had to be holy in the presence of God there. And it reinforced to them that they were the people of God with whom God was living. But in the New Testament, that imagery has changed. See, God no longer lives in a house built by human hands. God lives in all of us. Right? And that, and that happens in two ways. First of all, when, when, when we become a Christian, we become holy in the presence of God. Paul says that we are temples of the Holy Spirit who is within us. So God comes and dwell, dwells inside of us. There is a spark of the divine inside each one of us who have become a Christian. And that, that spark, that Holy Spirit transforms us and makes us powerful to do the things that God has called us to do. right? But as we come together as a group, as we become God's church, Christ dwells among us. right? He says, whenever two or three are gathered together in my name, I will be there with you. That's what Peter's talking about here. He's saying that we come together as Christians to create God's house on earth so that God can be seen in the world that we live in. See, Christians are meant to build God's temple on earth and they are to serve in God's temple as his holy priests. We are to intercede to worship God, to worship God, and to make His name known before the nations. We do that by serving God in His church, in His community. 
He's telling his audience that they've been chosen to be royal priests of a great king, and their calling will be to proclaim the nature and the glory of Yahweh, their God and king forever. But even more importantly, the Christians are being formed into God's holy people. He says, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellence of him who called you out of the darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, and now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, and now you have received mercy. You have been saved. You have been called. You have been brought together for the glory of God. To reflect his glory to a dark world. That is who you are. John the Baptist warned the, new, the Jewish nation that they should not pride themselves on being called sons of Abraham. And he said, because God can take the very stones of the ground and turn them into sons of Abraham. He can create for himself a holy nation out of nothing. And brothers and sisters, Peter is, is reminding us that we are that nothing that God has crafted his holy nation from. We have been engrafted into Israel Brothers and sisters, we are Israel. That is our identity. We are a holy people, a nation of priests set apart for the worship of God. We are people called out from every tongue and tribe and nation, and we have been called to fulfill the promise made to Abraham that the world would be blessed through his descendants. See, Christians are the people of God and they have been called into action to bring glory to God by building up His church and making His name known among the nations. Brothers and sisters, we've been saved by grace and we have been called to action. And my question to you this morning is, are you going to act? Is your faith real? Or is it something that you have put on the shelf? Is it something that you've thrown away or sold for less than what it's worth because you don't have place for it in your life? If we place, if we have been saved, our lives should look like we have been saved. And I don't mean carrying around a great big Bible with you and thumping it whenever anybody asks, okay? I'm not talking about wearing a Jesus Saves t-shirt or having a bumper sticker. Not that those are bad things, but that's not what we're talking about. It means you should place your hope in the grace of God. Not in the illusion of human progress or human perfectibility. Not in political saviors. Not in the brightness of your future. Not in the nostalgia of the past. You have been saved. You have been bought. That is what your hope should be in. You should be holy and hold yourself separate from the profane world. You need to be different. If you feel like, you you're like you're different, it is because you are different. You are called to something separate from the world that you live in. You are exiles. You belong to a different city. You should fear God more than you fear rejection by the people around you. After all, the world rejected Jesus, and he is the cornerstone of the kingdom that is to come. Right? He says, Behold, I am laying a stone in Zion, a cornerstone, chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. 
The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stumbling block and a rock of offense. If you are hated in this world, and you will be hated if you are a Christian, remember that they hated Christ first. Remember that if they find you offensive because of the things that you say, they found Christ offensive first. If you are persecuted for your faith, that is not a tragedy. It's the mission. You should love each other more than you love yourselves. You should crave God's word more than the philosophy of the world. These are the things that you should do if your faith is real. You need to take your faith down off the shelf. See, because we've been saved and we're being transformed in order to build God's church on earth. And you're not going to be able to do that if you are still worshiping false gods. You are not going to be able to take your faith down off the shelf and live it out for real unless it's a real faith. You are the temple of God. You are living stones in God's house. Every Christian in this room is a little temple housing the Spirit of God. And let me tell you, brothers and sisters, if you read through the Old Testament, there are very few things worse than profaning the temple of God. You do not want to be one of those people that sets up a pagan altar in the Holy of Holies. It doesn't end well for them. You do not want to erect an Asherah pole in the temple court. You do not want to paint the names of false gods on the wall of God's temple. And you do that when you worship false gods. When you idolize the profane things of this world. When you worship anything that is not Christ. You are profaning the temple of God. Don't do it. Don't profane God's temple. You are a priest of God. And there are very few things in the Old Testament worse than being a false priest or being a fallen priest. Those guys receive the full measure of God's wrath. Don't be a fallen priest. You are God's people, a chosen nation. Do not be stiff-necked the way the Hebrews were. And remember that this is not about you. It's about God. Peter finishes this section with a very interesting quote from Hosea. He proclaims, Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. This is a quotation from the book of Hosea. And in the book of Hosea, God attempts to create a picture of what Israel has done by telling a man, telling one of his priests to go marry a prostitute. Don't you imagine what that would be like, right? Young man, you're getting ready to grow up and go into the world. God comes down, he says, hey, go marry a prostitute. You're like, but I don't think this is going to end well. He's like, trust me, I'm God, go marry a prostitute. So you marry the prostitute. So Hosea goes out, he marries a prostitute. And she has kids by other dudes. And he names them. You're not my son. You're not my people. I will, not, I will reject you. Right? That's the names that he gives the kids because the kids aren't his. And all of this is to paint a picture of what Israel is doing to him on a daily basis as they turn and follow false gods. 
But then in this incredibly beautiful imagery, in chapter 2, Israel find, or the, Hosea finds his wife standing naked in, this, in the marketplace being auctioned off and he comes and he clothes her and he brings her back and he makes her his again. This prophecy was directed towards Israel, a nation that was unfaithful to God, but it was fulfilled in the Gentiles. People who were estranged from God, who have been brought back into God's presence, have been clothed with his righteousness and made the bride of Christ again. That is the God that we serve. Each of us has been ransomed from slavery and shame, and we have been called from darkness into the light of Christ to serve God and to make his name known. You will not live a holy lifestyle. You will not have true faith if your faith is not in the Christ who saved you. If you do not love the God who bought you at the price of his son. And so I'd ask you this morning, if there is anyone here who has never done that, if there is anyone here who does not know Jesus as their savior, who has never been ransomed from the sin in their life, this can be yours. You can have this today. You can have a new relationship with Christ now. In a minute, we're going to have a time of invitation, and I would ask you, come forward, and we'll pray with you, and we will show you how this inheritance can be yours. But brothers and sisters, for the rest of you that have been saved, you need to take your faith down off the shelf. Because Christ and God demand action from you you were saved by grace but you were called to action now go and act out your calling please bow your heads with me dear sweet jesus god we have heard your word preached this morning we have felt your holy spirit come down on us and lord i ask that you would become real to us that you would guide our actions, that you would change the way that we interact with the world around us. Lord, I ask that you would break our hearts for you and for the plans that you have. God, come in and come among us and be real to us. Change our hearts and sanctify us so that we can build your church here on earth and we can do your will among the peoples. That we would see the day when every tribe and every tongue and every nation proclaim your name and your glory. Lord, we ask these things in your holy name. Amen.